Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into Clojure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about Windows and Clojure with Mark Omering, one of the developers on CircleCI's new Windows support. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I'll say I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen every week, so I'm just delighted to be asked to be a guest. Great. It's awesome to have you on. So there's kind of two recent news items from CircleCI, and the big one that I want to talk about first was Windows support. I imagine sounds like quite a lot of work. And so what was the reason for putting in all of this work to support Windows? Absolutely. Yeah, we're delighted to launch our Windows support. It's something that our customers have been asking us for, first and foremost. Our customers that use us for Linux, Mac OS, also have Windows workloads, which they wanted to be on one platform for. Secondly, there's a big untapped market there for us. So the Stack Overflow um, developer survey this year had an interesting figure, which was that 40% of developers are running Windows on their desktop. So that was the, there were the two big reasons why we wanted to build Windows support. Nice. And so what does this mean now? What can people do now that they couldn't before? Use all the platforms. So when you push code to CircleCI, you can now have workflow and you can run jobs on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux all together in the same workflow. So you can build your iOS apps, build your any Docker containers, and also any Windows apps, uh, Windows phone apps, any Windows workload. All within the same code base. So one push would trigger all of these builds at the same time. Exactly, yeah. And the caches and workflows and all the features of CircleCI that you expect are all there on Windows and all interoperate between the platforms. Nice. So one neat example there is the workspaces we have, which let you essentially pass a folder of data from a job to job in a workflow. Yeah. You could start with a Linux job that builds some data, puts it in a workspace, and then run a Windows job and take that data out. So that's wow. It's a fully kind of a, a fully integrated uh, solution. It's not a separate system that we've bolted on. I see. So let's say I had like a Go program where I'm pretty sure Go can cross compile for different architectures. Could I have like a Linux Go build to build my Windows? binaries and then pass that through workspaces and run the tests or whatever I want to run on Windows. Could you do that kind of thing? Yeah, interesting. That's how we build the system ourselves. So the piece of Circle CI that actually executes your config, we call it the build agent. Mm -hmm. That is a Golang program that we build on all platforms in one Linux job. So we build it for Linux, Mac OS and Windows, cross compile it. And those binaries get put into a Docker image and then separately, we have a macOS job and a Windows job that run the tests. Okay. Don't think we actually use the same binary that we built in the upstream job, but that's that's certainly possible. Right. That was an interesting one for us because as we started building the Windows support, that was the first thing we needed to do. So the, the very first build we ran <laughs> was to install the Go tools and start trying to build the, right. the system itself to bootstrap us. Yep. So traditionally, uh, this kind of CI/CD workload has not been so well suited for windows there has been you know things in the past but certainly like the way that circle ci does it with very ephemeral kind of containers and ephemeral stuff hasn't always like i've worked in windows environments in the past where it just hasn't really been a very good fit for the nature of the software we were building so what kind of teams are you finding are able to take advantage of this so the windows build itself we've had some beta partners using it for a couple of months now and they have largely been existing Circle CI customers that had Windows workloads they wanted to run. The easiest folk for us to get involved to help with was that. And they typically have applications that are cross-platform. Mm-hmm. So customers that were exist- using us for their Linux build and their Mac build. A lot of desktop apps 
and a lot of libraries that need to be distributed across all platforms being the initial users of this. The question also, you were talking about how the tooling has evolved. And it's funny, I haven't seen a lot of the recent evolution in Windows tooling. My developer origin story, as it was, I started out working game development when I first left university. Mm. And uh, back then we used cruisecontrol.net to run builds. Uh I don't know if any of your listeners remember that on a Windows server. And you're right, it was absolutely not suited to that sort of ephemeral uh, job. We would have a I think it was a tortoise SVN we were using. So a subversion checkout of the code and each build would check out the latest on top of the old code. And you'd end up with all these scenarios where a deleted file would remain in the, the system after you <laughs> built it. Or, uh, you know, essentially you're just reusing the same folder over and over. Mm-hmm. Since then, I've been at CircleCI for a number of years. So I haven't seen the evolution of the Windows platform, but what we have seen is the, uh, the cloudification of Windows. So, We run Windows builds on AWS, Amazon's cloud, and GCP, Google's compute engine, Google compute platform. Mm -hmm. And um, we can spin up Windows machines. I think it takes about 55 seconds for us to boot Windows machine. That was was today's numbers. So we can spin them up very quickly. And yeah, we throw the whole machine away after the build is run. Right. So every single build gets a new Windows. Yeah, it's a full new EC2 instance, or GCP just calls them instances. So it's a whole new VM spun up. It, so the team that I'm on, we call ourselves the machine team. We deal with the the non-Docker builds in CircleCI. So uh, Mac OS builds, Windows builds, and what we had been calling machine builds, which I think we're going to refer to more as VM builds. So where you have a whole EC2 instance to yourself. Right. And one of the things we've been building hand in hand with this Windows launch is better support for us to scale the VMs because I think the Windows builds take about 55 seconds to boot up. Some of the beefier Docker images for Linux can take about 100 seconds, 120. So that's a latency we need to hide from the user. You're not going to be happy if you push your code and it takes 120 seconds to spin up the machine. (laughs) So we have to boot the machines in advance. Right. And that's uh, an interesting problem we've been working on. So we've had a a system that was good enough for the last uh, year or so with some hard-coded values and some uh, system that worked well enough as long as you didn't look behind the curtain. And um, <laughs> uh, so we've been investigating using uh, control theory uh, or system control theory and uh, queuing theory to try and work out the best way to um, boot the machines. So the it's been an interesting problem to work on and it's been a neat problem. I love a problem where you can go and find the literature and solve the problem as it's meant to be solved. So in in looking into the queuing theory, we found queuing theory had been invented, I think it was about 1908, Wikipedia said, by Mr. Erlang, Uh that has the programming language named after him. Okay. And the problem he was trying to solve was telephone switches. He was trying to optimize, I don't know whether it was the number of people or the amount of machinery they needed, but to run a telephone exchange, they were working out what their peak expected number of calls was. and you know, I'm going to say it's mm-hmm. people, your listeners might correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, how many servers would be needed to physically plug in all the plugs right. uh, to keep those calls going. Yep. And he seemed to spend eight to 10 years inventing a new branch of mathematics, queuing theory to wow. solve the problem. Whereas we were able to go to his Wikipedia page and just <laughs> start from there. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> there's been 110 years of a evolution in this branch of mathematics and we've been able to just lift very standard uh, queuing algorithms the one interest there's a couple of interesting points in how we do the scaling so the 
first is that our jobs are ephemeral and we throw them away. So a lot of the standard, like Amazon's, what do they call them, auto-scaling groups, and I think they're called instance groups in Google, mm-hmm. they're designed for maintaining a fleet of servers. You know, so you could imagine you have maybe eight web servers in a, a scaling group, and then as your load goes up, you add a ninth, add a tenth. Mm-hmm. Whereas we are constantly spinning up new VMs and shutting them down again as soon as jobs right. are finished. So our workload is nearly the exact correct shape, but very different at the same time. So we've been, uh, certainly we're investigating if we can use some of the auto-scaling tooling, but we're finding we're having to, because our problem is just a slightly different shape, we're having to build our own systems. Yeah. But the other thing with the queuing theory is that a lot of it works really well when your uh, the arrival rate of your jobs is random. Mm-hmm. which we've noticed the for a busy image on our system, so maybe a, like a standard uh, Ubuntu uh, 16.04 image, say, is going to be really popular. You might be running five, ten thousand 10,000 jobs an hour. So the arrival rate of that is is random because there are thousands of developers across the world pushing code. Yep. But for lesser used images, so the Windows has been a great example, while we were in our uh, preview period, we might get 40 minutes with no builds coming through. And then one developer would push and he or she would have a workflow with, you know, maybe three, four jobs in it. Uh, so we get four jobs at once. Mm-hmm. It's not random. It is very much correlated with sort of workflow size. And when plugging those numbers into some standard queuing theory models, you know, if you said, well, we get four jobs an hour, it would say, well, you need one server booted. But when all four come along at once, you need four booted. So we're <laughs> having to add a, a bit more intelligence to the system. Right. I would say machine learning, but that'd be a lie. It's just standard queuing theory. <laughs> so like, you know, Windows is quite a different system in many ways, different OS than, you know, Linux and Mac. Linux and Mac seem, you know, have share quite a lot of similarities in the Unix underpinnings. So what did you kind of find when you came to add Windows were there kind of assumptions that you'd made that no longer held or so what was that process like? Yes, the shell is the big difference. So one very conscious decision we made was to go with Windows Server 2019. I don't remember the exact release, but the later one. Data Center Edition. Data Center Edition also. That gets us the Docker containers. Uh-huh. But um, the Windows 2019 comes with an SSH, the OpenSSH installed as part of the base install. Yeah. And our system for booting VMs, be they typically Mac and uh, Linux, assumes an SSH connection and it assumes an authorized keys file. So the build agent itself, the Go binary that bootstraps the whole thing will generate a new key pair. And then it, we boot a VM and ask the service that's booting the VM to add this public key to the authorized keys file so that the build can then SSH in and run. Mm-hmm. So by choosing Windows Server 2019, we got that out of the box. We had to install Bash in the image, uh, which thankfully we get through the the official Git client for Windows comes with a uh, yes. it's an MSYS system that gives us a Bash shell. So we yep. have a Bash shell. We've been looking at supporting other versions of Windows. So Windows 10 has been uh, something that's been mentioned in the past. And if we went with that, we would need to sort of build, install enough into the base image that uh, meets the this sort of API we have that mm-hmm. is an SSH connection. The shell has been interesting. So we made a ton of assumptions that slash temp is a folder you can write to that <laughs> bashes the default shell. 
Um, we started out down the path then of adding, you can imagine, a bunch of ifs through everything, saying if you're on Windows, then PowerShell dash C this way. And if you're, otherwise, if you're on Mac or Linux, execute um, bash. Uh, the other shell we support is command, cmd.exe. And annoyingly, of every shell we've seen, we had a hard-coded assumption that you could execute the shell name dash dash c and then a string. Ah, right. And that that's true in PowerShell, Bash, ZSH, every shell except for cmd.exe. <laughs> so we had to go in and put a big dirty if in the middle of everything, saying, you know, build your shell string this way, unless it's cmd.exe. <laughs> <laughs> We swapped actually the default shell. So the default shell that customers see of CircleCI is PowerShell. But when we SSH in a layer deeper, we get Bash as the default shell, which was great for building the prototype. The slash temp is there. You get your GNU tools. So we were able to remove these sort of ifs in the code saying if PowerShell of Bash and just write a sort of sanitized Bash script for bootstrapping ourselves. That's worked great. And now we're starting to see the limitations. We're starting to hit issues where tar still isn't quite the same. When you boot a SIGWIN bash shell, it's not real bash. So we're starting to see some finicky issues with sim links and changing paths and stuff. So I think we're going to have to reevaluate now and go back to a different system for bootstrapping the machine. Right. That sounds messy, perhaps, to figure that out. Yeah, although now... Now, going back, we have a better idea. So what we had been doing was sort of remotely going into the machine and installing our agent and setting some paths and adding some data. And a new model we're looking at now is where we would put the agent in and as part of it starting up, it can bootstrap itself. Internet. So it would be loaded on an AMI beforehand? No, we actually use SCP to put the, oh, <laughs> the okay. binary in itself. So right. the, um, but we sort of have a... We call them different words internally move, inner and outer. The agent itself starts in its outer mode where, where it will get a VM for running the build, be that Linux, Mac, or Windows. And then it uses SCP to copy a copy of itself in, and then it invokes itself, and off it goes. And the that outer process is part of copying the binary into the, the container itself, or the VM itself. It also copies in some config data. It sets up some paths. It sets environment variables. Because we're doing that remotely, we're sort of having to say, if the target platform is Windows, then treat it specially. Whereas if we do that as part of, once we copy the binary in and have the binary itself bootstrap itself, it knows statically that it's on Windows. So we can have much better factored code where we can have a Windows set of path and an Linux set of path rather than having to introspect where we're running. Right. And so you mentioned uh, you've got some Go in here and CircleCI is you know, a famous Clojure user, so there's, there's Clojure. So how did you sort of split up those responsibilities and you know, what's doing what here? Yeah, so you're right. Circle is a Clojure shop, and we have some smatterings of Go around the place. And the Go we've chosen for the specific places where we can't really run Clojure. So interestingly, in CircleCI 1.0, we used to have Clojure that we ran inside the build, which was our inference system, which would go into your repository and try and make guesses about what language you were using and try to sort of generate a config for you. That I think we got a closure there down to a 9 meg uh, jar, and it started in about 200 milliseconds. It would it's pretty good. take a second or two to run, but it was, it was you know, we were copying a 9 meg jar in, and we had to have the JVM inside the build, and it was uh, yes. slow and restrictive. So with CircleCI 2.0, the 
core of the system is that you bring your own Docker image. So we can't rely on there being a JVM in there, let alone the exact JVM we require. So we needed a something that would boot quickly and be small. So like a, a, a compiled language makes sense in that uh, scenario. So I think we'd looked at Rust and Go. This is maybe, I think, three years ago. And we found Go was better at statically compiling itself and including all of its libs in one Go or one executable. I think Rust has improved a lot since, but at the time it was trying to dynamically link to libc. Okay. And again, in a container, we can't rely on there being any specific libc. Yeah. So uh, Go won the day there. So that's our build agent, as we called it, so the, the small executable inside the system. The other big place we use Go is our CLI tool, which my team rewrote about a year ago as part of our Orbs initiative. So that's a tool you can validate your config locally. You can call some of our APIs with it. And that is a tool that we wanted to run on customers, or so like our, our developers' machines, our customers' machines. So again, they, actually, we, we did prototype that as a jar. So we wrote the initial version in Clojure because it was what we enjoy uh, writing code in most. And then for the actual release, we sort of swapped it over to using Go so that we would have, again, one binary that we could easily ship to Platinum. Somewhere we're not aware of what the execution environment is going to be ahead of time. Right. So what were some of the other challenges you faced building the system? The main one was Unix versus Linux and the different shells as we've gone through the one issue that we had was we needed to build a full product. So we had an MVP since I think we had the first build running on the system in maybe March this year, but we needed to build out all of the features that we have. So customers expect to be able to SSH into a build, caches, workspaces, getting a proper image that has all the software installed, making sure the image can run containers. It was interestingly the very first feature request we had for the very first customer we had running Windows builds was I need to be able to run Linux, Linux containers inside the Windows image. <laughs> Great. And that, that was feature request number one inside Windows was to run Linux. And so support for all these features, we needed to build them up. And along the way, we had some fights with file paths. So we use blob storage, so typically Amazon S3 for storing caches and workspaces and test results and all the files that come out of your build container. And we had assumptions that the relative path to the cache or workspace on the machine, we could also use as an S3 key. So, you know, we S3 bucket slash your project slash your build, you know, slash var temp foo. We could then put on var temp foo on the machine. Uh, so we had code for generating one path with four slashes in it. But on Windows, we then needed to break it so that you have the Windows slashes locally and the uh, forward slashes in the S3 path. So uh, they were the trickier bugs to track down where the, sort of the code would work, but it would be generating, uh, you know, you'd have two different systems trying to generate the same path and one uses the wrong slashes. <laughs> they can't communicate about where files are. Mm. The neat things, though, that went really well with the project the one of the things I'm happiest with is that we were able to use orbs to do it. So the orbs are our uh, way of packaging config and sharing config between um, projects. And there's a bit of templating in there as well. So I was involved in the first Mac builds on Circle CI 2.0, and we had to introduce new config syntax. So for a Mac build under your job, you can say you want Mac OS. And under that, you say Xcode colon 10.3 or 10.2, whatever you want. Yep. 
So that was additional syntax we added to the config. For Windows, we were able to use orbs. So you import the Windows orb, and then in your job, you say the executor is Windows colon VS 2019 for the image with VS 2019 installed in it. And that then, we sort of rewrite the config then, and it actually ends up looking like a Linux build with a Windows image under the hood as a the CircleCI system see it. But the customer, we were able to add this neat sugar to the config, but not actually change the schema of the file at all or add anything, which is really neat to be able to add features in a sort of user land like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a mark of a well-designed system when you can extend it in ways that you didn't think about originally, and yet it still feels quite natural. Yeah. And it was only our third time trying it. So (laughs) (laughs) five years in, yeah, we learned a lot in 1.0. We knew where we were hamstrung ourselves and what we could do with config so we've made some better choices in 2.0 config and then 2.1 again we've tried to improve again it's something we've been pushing for more is trying to build features uh, sort of trying to build a platform more in, to be a platform that features can be built on top of by us and by our customers so orbs was the first push in that direction we're also looking at new data apis we have a team working on right now for us to build better insights and analytics about your CI system, but also to enable our customers to mine the same data. So we're taking an API first approach there where we're building the API and then the UI on top of it. At the same time, our customers are getting access to the new APIs. Great. Again, it it helps us iterate. And again, with the orbs, the neat thing with them is that they are pinned at a specific version in your config. So it lets us iterate on the orbs and make breaking changes all we want. But we won't break any builds because customers have pinned exactly the version they wanted. Yeah, that's a good thing to have. One issue we have at the scale we're at now is we're running, I think, about a million builds a day, 30 million builds a month. So when you think about making a change and you're thinking, this change will have zero effect on customers, you know, the chances of this happening are one in 10,000. I think, well, that's 100 times a day that's going to break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we find our customers will... Anywhere there is any ambiguity in our config syntax, customers will have exploited it and will be relying on it. So it's we need to work really hard to keep things compatible. So the more we can push into things like orbs that are pinned by the customer and committed into their source control, the more freedom we have to evolve the platform forward Yeah, without breaking builds. Yeah, I, I had issues. This was many years ago. It wasn't even a Circle CI issue. It was an NPM issue where I went away over Christmas and the builds were running before Christmas. And then after Christmas, they were failing. And there was, I don't know, maybe a week or two weeks off in between. And I came back, all the builds were failing with you know some very obscure errors inside JavaScript land. And I was thinking, you know, where is this change? And so I was looking all the way through CircleCI. CircleCI had not changed over that time. And eventually I realized it was some, you know, transitive dependency, like, you know, way deep down that had released some breaking change in a you know, but we hadn't numbered the version correctly. And it was meant to be compatible, except it really wasn't. And so I, eventually I found this thread of like, you know, hundreds of people who all had run into the same breaking issue as me. <laughs> so I'm definitely a big fan of pinning as hard as you can on every single thing to just make sure nothing can yeah. move away from you. I guess the pinning and then there's the closure adherence to never shipping breaking changes, which is so <laughs> glorious to be <laughs> living in that world. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, I opened up an old Mac project that needed to be updated for 64-bit and I thought, I'll just take a look, see like 
is this easy or hard for me to do it for the author? Because I don't think the author was that involved anymore. The code hadn't been touched for about 10 years, I think. Yeah, eight or 10 years. And it was so old. Xcode is pretty good about like deprecation warnings and providing fixes. But it was so old that like all of the deprecation warnings were like had been removed from this version of Xcode. Like for me to have migrated, I would have needed to find like a version of Xcode like from four years ago to do one migration and then migrate it forward, you know, again and again, just to get to the current thing. There were things that were deprecated and the recommendations themselves had been deprecated by the time I was running this in 2019. So whereas compare that to closure projects where you open them up from five or eight or 10 years ago and they just run apart from, you know, recent changes to the JVM itself, but closure itself. Yeah. Very compatible. I'm trying to think back through. So I've been involved in a bunch of the upgrades of our so Circle 2.0 is built as a suite of services all built around the monolith that we're slowly but surely carving out. And um, I've been involved. I think when I started at Circle that we were on Clojure 1.4, 1.5. I think I upgraded to 1.6 or 1.7 maybe. And the big change was the hash algorithm had changed. Uh, and we had a bunch of tests that were asserting hmm. That the sequence of key values you get out of a map, if you yeah, you know, if you turn a map into a seek, we were asserting that you got things in a certain order. So like that first of a map gave a certain key and value. So they were bad tests that I had to go through and fix. And then a colleague of mine had the misfortune of the one breaking change we hit in Clojure was when they introduced oh, it's this was it the static linking? Is that the term? Uh I know what you're referring to. I think that's the term. It would be like where the the compiler would sort of inline the Vardy reference. Direct linking. Direct linking. And we were monkey patching (laughs) closure.test. We still are monkey patching (laughs) (laughs) closure.test. And closure.test because it's in closure core and the closure core jar itself is built with that direct direct linking linking enabled. So that call was no longer derefing a var. It was inlining. Uh, okay we had to uh someone else on my team ended up with a having to write it we have circle ci.test our own test runner to work around this issue right and then uh i did the, i swept came in and did the next upgrade where uh, again nothing needed changing oh the most recent one i did was to one i think we skipped one nine and went straight to 110 and the the namespace macro is now specced yeah and yeah that's true it require and import you the the documented way to call them is with a keyword require and a keyword import within the namespace macro but it would accept the symbol require so with no colon in front mm. and import we are using some very old libraries in circle circle for sending chat notifications for hip chat and flowdoc and campfire and all these pre-slack chat systems mm-hmm. and a bunch of those libraries used the unsupported old syntax and uh, I was desperately forking them on GitHub because I couldn't find the old maintainers to uh, have them commit my one character patch to the import statement at the top. Some of them we were able to fix because we found out that the chat applications that we were sending notifications for had actually like gone out of business two years prior. (laughs) 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 I think the world has migrated to Slack. Yeah. I don't even know what Flowdoc is, but we have chat notifications for it. I think they sponsored the a Closure Coding Challenge like many years ago, four or five years ago, I think they, I used it for that. Oh, that would make sense. Why Circle has support for them then if there's a Closure link. Yeah, that, I think that's that's my memory. So 
Windows, you pay for a license for Windows and you generally don't for Linux. So how does the licensing work for you in CircleCI Windows? For the customers, there's nothing for them to do. They can build on Windows. From the start, we've had our biz dev and legal uh, teams working with Microsoft and Google and Amazon on the the licensing. So nothing for customers. And there was nothing for me in engineering, thankfully, as well to do. That was other departments. Um, There's an extra cost incurred in running Windows. I think the cost to us for, I'm not sure that it might be double or something, the cost, but um, we have our new pricing system, which is our usage-based pricing. So the first plan we have is our performance pricing, which is uh, usage-based pricing. And you pay for credits, you spend your dollars on credits, and then you can spend credits on Linux builds, Mac builds, and Windows builds. And there's a different cost per minute for each of those. Mm -hmm. So the Windows builds, I think the machines maybe have two or four times the number of cores that the Linux ones do. And we have the the Windows license fee as well. And so there's a higher price for the Windows uh, credits versus the Linux ones. Right. So that's quite a new change also, the pricing. Well, not... Well, actually, how new is that? I, I noticed it not that long ago, it feels like. It feels to me like it's been there for about a year, but we might not have had it public. We've been working with, again, partners on the pricing for quite some time. The container-based pricing that we had, we're migrating away from. So the idea there was you would pay, was the first one was free, of, yeah, and then $50 per container. Originally, it was $19, I remember. We had no free plan. And um, that limits the number of parallel builds you can run at once which is a bit of an artificial restriction because with us running all the builds on the cloud providers, we're not ourselves limited in the number of builds we can run. And we found for large companies, they wanted to have a large number of parallel builds running from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. in their local time. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't want to be paying for those containers overnight. So they wanted usage-based pricing. So the the usage-based pricing is was very much something our customers wanted to be paying for their use. And it's letting us increasingly give wider parallelism. Our goal is to remove our restrictions on parallelism, but we have some work to do there to I think our initiative is called task throttling because the we're not affected by how many builds are running at once, but when they all come at once, uh, we hit problems. Nomad is our uh, task scheduling system. We use the HashiCorp Nomad for... Um, actually allocating tasks to compute resources and the VMs that my team deal with, we've got to boot, again, hide that boot time latency. So when a flood of jobs comes in at once, that gives us spikes in our load. So we need to work on smoothing those out and also stop jockeying. So you can imagine if you have a project and you send in 100 tasks to run at once and another customer sends in one or two, we don't want your 100 builds to go into the queue uh... first. We want to run in. Let one customer in, then let one of yours, then let his the other his or her other build through, and then you're 99. So we need to be fair in that. And also generally throttling per account. So one account can't just flood all of the builds in at once. I see. Does queuing theory come in there as well? Queues themselves, rather than not too familiar with how the team are actually working on that project, but it has been one of these systems where the behavior you need is a queue, but you also need to be able to look deeper down the queue to right. be able to look past. If you've sent in 100 builds and this other person has one build behind, we need to be able to look deeper than the 100 builds to find yeah. the, So you can't just uh, look at the top of the queue. So it's 
my favorite pattern, which is the database is a queue pattern that we need. <laughs> so what else have has CircleCI and you in particular been working on? For me this year, uh, stability and performance has been a huge focus of mine this year. So around March this year, we had a shaky time with our uptime. And I was on a, we assembled a small tiger team to try and address the acute performance issues that we were hitting there. So we did a bunch of profiling and fixing of largely database systems. We had a, we'd grown in many axes we found. So we had more customers than we had previously. Since we launched workflows, we had more jobs. So one, what used to trigger one build could now trigger, you know, eight, 10 builds. We have customers pushing in 100 builds at once as part of a workflow. <laughs> and then within the workflows, they're using orbs. So there's text expansion going on. And uh, we ended up really straining our database. So we had some acute remedial fixes to do then. And subsequently, we have a couple of teams now doing the, the longer term fixes. So we identified where the growth has been hurting us and where we need to work on stability. So we've made huge improvements there over the last few months. and then. My team in particular with the VMs, what we've been looking at is sort of cloud stability. So at busy times, the cloud providers we use run out of compute in different zones. Sort of the guarantee we get from Google and Amazon is that in a particular region, we can get compute, but individual zones run out of uh, capacity. And that's that's not an incident for the cloud provider. It's just, you know, one zone is particularly busy. So we get errors saying, try again later. So we've been building a system of circuit breakers to allow us detect when these operations are failing in different zones. So I think if we get more failures to boot a machine than successes within a certain zone over a couple of minutes, we then mark that cloud zone as being like a, the, the circuit is open. And we, I think it's about 10 minutes, we stop sending uh, any requests to that zone. Then once the 10 minutes have elapsed, we send a few, we go into a half open state of the circuits. We send a few bit requests to boot a VM to the zone. And again, monitor those closely. And if they are successful, we put the zone back into operation. Otherwise, we leave it for another 10 minutes. That protects us against out-of-capacity issues and also actual problems if a particular zone or region just starts giving 500 errors, you know, get network problems and stuff in the clouds. So trying to protect ourselves as much has been a big focus of my team, along with the auto-scaling work and also doing some more reactive scaling so if we get a glut of builds or if a cloud zone goes down or big issue we get as well is when a partner such as github have a period where their webhooks uh, stop delivering yep. which can happen from time to time we get no webhooks from github for i don't know 10 20 minutes say and then we get them all at once once they come back up uh, and that then opens the floodgates. So we've been uh, trying to protect ourselves from these. So adding sort of reactive scaling to our system. So along with booting enough machines for what we predict the uh, growth to be through the day, also reacting to the number of builds that are starting to queue up. And we've been automating a bunch of processes that had been manual where, you know, we'd, uh, alerts would trigger about particular backlogs of different VMs. And we would have run books where we would take uh, remedial action. And uh, we've been automating bunch of that which has been freeing our team to work on the feature work so windows and work on new things because we have automated the toil away great currently the the track we're taking nice 
So that's the, the performance work. We've been making a bunch of underlying changes that customers won't see, they'll see secondary benefits from. So we have a new setting in the advanced setting in uh, projects which has been on by default since September last year, which is pipelines. So a pipeline is our term for one execution of your project. A pipeline contains workflows and workflows contain builds. And that pipeline system is where we've built orbs. It's where the performance pricing is based. If you want to run Windows, pipelines needs to be enabled. And there has been some very subtle incompatible changes in pipelines. We've been able to turn it on for new projects because we don't risk breaking a new project. And we've been turning it on slowly for more and more projects. And that has part of the sort of carving up the monolith. We've been able to really isolate systems nicely with our new pipeline system. So it's something our engineers are really pushing for to get all projects across to use pipelines. And then the users of CircleCI will see new projects like you know windows and orbs and new things coming on the back of that we're building our new ui yeah so yeah you'll see on the job page we have a new ui and we're really loving that project so um we've got a great team with i think they're they've called themselves the x team at circle ci building that project and they're uh they're so enthusiastic about the project it's great to see and they've been building it with what they turned a waffle, which is W-A-F-L, an acronym for Well-Architected Functionally Limited. So what the way they've been building the new UI is rather than an MVP, they've been, which would typically be like a scrappy, you know, get something working and then build it out from there. They've been building with best practices a very limited new build page. And then day by day and week by week, they've been adding all the features to it. So going in with a really solid vertical slice through the feature and then broadening that out to add all the functionality on the build page. I think they have the build page largely done and they're moving on to other pages through the system now. And uh, that's been a big focus for us. We're really excited by that. We recently GA'd what we call our restricted contexts. So that lets you have your context is where you store your secrets. So your environment variables that might have API tokens, et cetera, in them. Mm-hmm. And you can now use GitHub Teams to restrict what users have access to particular contexts. Oh, great. So you could have anyone on your team can push and run your tests and run your code coverage, and but only a certain number of, uh, certain designated folk can actually deploy to production. And that gets very neat when you tie it with the manual approval jobs. So you can put a job into your workflow, which is a manual approval that puts a button that someone needs to push. Mm-hmm. And that essentially acts like a pseudo. So maybe we're, maybe me and you, Daniel, we're on the same team. I push code. I can run the tests and do the code coverage, but you have the ability to push to production. Uh, so that approval job will require you to push the button. Yep. And then from that point on, the workflow runs with your permissions, not mine. Hmm. That's clever. So it lets people uh, yeah, hide their, uh, not hide their credentials, but <laughs> keep a, a known set of folk in their org having their credentials and uh, restricting them from the entire dev team. Yeah. Just going back to your, your front end, CircleCI was a big Ohm user for a long time, but I understand that the new UI is, is written in JavaScript almost entirely, eh? or entirely perhaps. Yeah, entirely. Yeah, JavaScript and ClojureScript. So the, we were a big Ohm user. There is some Ohm Next in there as well. And I believe prior to ClojureScript, there was CoffeeScript as well. And I believe there may still be some CoffeeScript in there too. Yeah, the, the front-end team made a choice to swap from ClojureScript to JavaScript. They had a 
bunch of reasons for swapping. One main reason was that we found we ourselves at the time, this is the swap maybe, uh, I think we were using ClojureScript for about four years and about one year ago that we made the swap. But at the, during those four years, we found we were one of the biggest users of Ohm. So mm-hmm. it was very difficult for us to get help and there wasn't the community, you know, the Stack Overflow community of answers to right. how to solve different problems. And we found we were writing a bunch of tools ourselves. And we found the React community already had these tools and, and better. Another reason for the change was we found we were building a lot of our own tools in ClojureScript, where the React community already had the tools. So there's the native browser plugins for Chrome that have the React UI debugger. There's the GraphQL debugger, etc., all built in. And we were sort of building our own web-based tooling to add these sort of debuggers where they were built in with React. For hiring, it was a big change for us because we could hire people that already knew React and TypeScript and all the tooling we're using. So they were productive on day one rather than having to learn ClojureScript and also learn our front end, which had been, like I said, quite monolithic and uh, had a bunch of technologies in there. So mm-hmm. we were able to make a clean cut away from the old system to the new. Another thing that the the team pointed out to me was that the things they love about ClojureScript weren't present in JavaScript when we started with ClojureScript. But in the four years that had passed, the React community had adopted a bunch of the patterns, the, 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 the Redux pattern of having a very small area of your application that can actually change the global state and that sort of state atom that uh, Ohm uses. That's sort of standard React uh, Redux application now, whereas mm. at the time with Ohm, that was you know very niche, very new sort of superpower for ClojureScript. Right. Business. And one thing I've sort of been curious about is you allow people to just run builds for free, you know, limited, but still for free based off of like, you know, just a push to GitHub. And how do you, you know, what is the story with crypto miners and other sort of like malicious usage of the CircleCI platform? How do you address that? Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up because uh, last Saturday I actually spent several hours trying to <laughs> swat a new swathe of crypto miners from the platform. It's fun to see them come in because they um, immediately alerts go off and we're very quick to uh, ban them. I really enjoy seeing the sort of tenacity of them. So we had, we had miners in the past where we would typically peg all the CPUs. They were very easy to spot and we'd uh, be able to detect and eradicate them from the system. And then um, they started a very interesting way of doing it where they would run a build using Docker, which would run a headless like Chromium browser, yep. which would then point at a blog spot. And the blog spot blog would have a JavaScript in the, mm-hmm. which would mine crypto. Wait. That... So they were using... Oh, really? Yeah. So they would run the browser headless on CircleCI, executing JavaScript from Blogspot, mining cryptocurrency. It feels like a very inefficient way to mine cryptocurrency. I would have thought so, yeah. They also don't get to do it for very long. <laughs> but um, the the one at the weekend was they were actually mining the cryptocurrency during the Docker build. So the builds looked like they were doing a regular Docker build. And the, the steps of running the Docker build were actually... Um, the mining the crypto itself. Uh, and the issue at the weekend was their Docker builds ended up crashing. And we have a system where if a build hard crashes, we restart it five times. So uh, we were, uh, you know, we had systems that were catching the miners, but then the the way their builds were cr- crashing and being cancelled, they'd run again. So we needed to 
quickly cut that out as well. <laughs> it's interesting. We have a we have a shared Slack channel with some of our uh, competitors in the space where we have a, a cordial atmosphere of sharing all the latest tips and tricks of what the miners are up to and how we can uh, swap them. So it's we have a, a shared hive mind of how to find them and eradicate them. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's always fun to have a kind of the boardrooms between companies being competitive you know the engineers having this cordial attitude to solving their problems yeah that's really cool i'm very glad to hear that the other thing which is sort of quite recent in the news is circle ci has got raised their series d funding round for quite a lot of money so you know what does that mean for i guess the company and for the product and the team talk me through those things yeah we're delighted with the funding so we've raised our series d and first and foremost that's going to allow us to continue our laser focus on ci and cd so that's you know we're going to focus entirely on ci cd and adding new compute types to the platform uh, we're going to start adding support for more vcs providers so right now we support github and bitbucket we're going to start looking at gitlab and other providers and making our system agnostic of the vcs type um, another focus for us is control that the larger enterprises need so features like the restricted contexts and audit logging features you can imagine like large enterprises like banks have very strict requirements for who can push to production and um, wanting full logging of what that's happened that's something we've been okay so over the last two years we've added a bunch of work there and it's something we're just getting better and better at we're building the new ui which we're really happy with and also focusing our growth or of hiring into EMEA and APAC. So we're... Uh, can you just expand those acronyms in case people haven't... Oh, sorry. EMEA is Europe, Middle East, and Africa, I believe. And APAC is Asia Pacific region. So in Europe specific... So I'm in uh, in Cavan in Ireland. And we've been a remote team. Our engineering at Circle is nearly 100% remote. And we've been hiring in Europe for as long as I've been at the company, but we haven't been particularly targeted in it. So... We've recently changed our strategy to focus on a smaller number of countries. So we now are focusing on Ireland, the UK, and Germany in particular, and trying to hire folk in there. So you'll see increased focus from us now in those countries as we try to uh, grow our teams directly there, rather than having an open uh, hiring rec on the website that just says remote friendly. Mm -hmm. We've got specific roles on the site that mention Ireland, the UK, and Germany. Right. So... On a pretty light note, I noticed that CircleCI somehow managed to get the domain circle.ci, which I thought was very clever when I saw that was linked on. I think it must have been on Twitter that it came through. How did you you manage to get that? Yeah, it came up recently. I needed to do some digging on it because when we built the new CLI tool, we wanted to... So you can install the new CLI tool through Bash or through Snap on Ubuntu or through GitHub releases. But you can also do the curl pipe to bash trick to install it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a neat URL for that. So I had to go digging and finding how to get, we've got circle.ci forward slash CLI, and you can pipe that straight to bash (laughs) um, and installs the CLI tool. But uh, I joined the company in November 2014, and it was October 2014, a month before I joined, we snagged that domain for $10, which I think is a bargain. Wow. Our SRE team were saying it's, it's a bane for them because it's not through a regular registrar. So we need to pay every year with PayPal to, to okay. maintain the circle.ci. So we can't use our credit card. Because this is uh, to the Ivory Coast, isn't it? In Africa. 
it's an African registrar. I'm not certain exactly where the registrar is, uh, but yeah, but they, when I went looking for more info on it, I was told that uh, <laughs> damn that domain and me having to send PayPal's to see you. It's a neat domain, certainly. I'm sure the marketing team's happy with it. Yeah, and we have it hooked up through Bitly, so we can shorten links with Bitly, but rather than using bitly.ly, yeah. it's circle.ci slash, and then we get a little... Uh, miniaturized url on the end that's really neat so good for tweeting yeah yeah great well if people are interested in working with circle ci they can go to the circle ci careers page which is you know off circleci.com slash careers and yeah i want to say thanks for coming on and sharing i guess the internals of what's going on i know when i asked you to interview i wasn't exactly sure you know how much you were going to be able to tell me and yeah this has been it's been really interesting to kind of get the inside scoop on a lot of things going on at Circle. So, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and sharing what you know. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. And I'm, if any time anyone ever meets me at a conference, I'm only too happy to share what's happening under the water as the uh, swan furiously paddles to keep the, the platform <laughs> running. <laughs> great. Oh, thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Goodbye.